You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Hello, and welcome to the Sport Horse Podcast. I'm Nicole Lakin. And I'm Tim Warden. And welcome to our first episode of the Sport Horse Podcast in 2023. I hope you all had a great new year. Nicole was there for the recording of this episode a few weeks ago. But since I'm recording the intro and intro now, and Nicole is currently enjoying some well-deserved time off, you will be stuck hearing a bit more of my voice today. On episode 19, we had Dr. Inga Wolfram join us to discuss sustainable equestrianism and the horse-rider interaction. Inga is also a sports psychology expert and has written some great articles and even a book on the topic, and I'll include links to some of those in the show notes, which makes her the perfect guest to dive into the topic of sports psychology and some of the important considerations surrounding a rider's mental processing and their performance in the ring. This is an episode that every rider and coach needs to listen to. Inga does a great job of highlighting some issues many riders struggle with and practical solutions to address those issues. Uh, I think we all see some things at the competition warm-up or in the ring that leave us guessing a little bit about is this the best way to prepare athletes for competition and are there certain things we should be doing maybe in training or with respect to you know how we give instruction going into the ring. So uh, this episode covers that and we hope you find this uh, information really valuable. Dr. Inga Wolfram was recently appointed as Professor of Sustainable Equestrianism at the University of Applied Sciences Van Hal Lerenstein in the Netherlands. She holds an MSc in Human Equine Sports Science and a PhD in Rider Psychology. Her previous research ranged from rider personality, effective mood states, and mental skills training to horse-rider coordination dynamics, judging bias, and visual search behavior. She's worked with equestrians from grassroots to international level and has published several books about rider psychology and the horse-rider interaction. She's passionate about equestrian sports and even more passionate about making it future-proof. Inger's current research focuses on how the equine sector can transition towards more sustainability and longevity. Hi, Inga. It's so great to have you back again on the Sport Horse Podcast. Hi, Nicole. Hi, Tim. Really great to be back. Awesome. Well, we'll get right into it. Um, we have a great series of videos on a number of sports psychology topic topics, and we'll definitely provide a link to those in our show notes for everybody listening. What are some of the most common issues that you see in riders, uh, spe- specifically in riders who are competing? Well, really good that you guys found the videos. Um, I did those a few years back, but uh, to be honest, the issues uh, that I try to tackle there, I, you know, they are timeless. Well, I'm not quite sure whether they're timeless, you know, in hundred years time, who knows? Uh, but they are, they are certainly something that, uh, that I think most riders should, well, at least have a little look at and see, hey, does this apply to me? So what we're talking about is, you know, there, there, there are several mental strategies that you can use as a rider in training, but also in competition. See, when we talk about sports psychology, a lot of the time uh, people immediately think, well, first of all, they think, what is it? Um, And then I sort of try to explain, you know, you don't have to lie on the couch and tell me about your youth. I mean, if you want to, you can. But um, (laughs) (laughs) but it's, it's more about, see, if you're riding a horse and you're doing really well in training. And, you know, if you're riding dressage, you know, that, you know, the horse is working really well at home, you know, you can do all the exercises, et cetera, et cetera. Same goes in show jumping. You know, if you're jumping a course at home or in training, um, everything's going really smoothly. And the minute you actually go to a show, all of a sudden, you know, um, it all falls apart. Um, The things that I see 
most often, or I have seen most often in the past, um, is, is that in the warm-up, things still go really well, especially in dressage. In show jumping, but we'll get to that in a minute, because also, Nicole, I'm quite curious to hear your point of view as a, as a competitor. But then the minute they go into the show ring, especially the minute the bell goes, literally the ding, 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 that's when it all falls apart. And, and the reasons why that happens, uh, you know, the reasons behind it, that can be, they, 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 they vary from rider to rider. But what we quite often see is that, you know, all of a sudden the rider will, you know, the rider will enter at A, so I'm using dressage as an example, um, or, you know, canter uh, across the starting line, and all of a sudden the rider will kind of sit up or, you know, and you see an ever such slight shift in the rider, and then you also see the shift in the horse. Um, and a lot of the time that's because tension creeps in um, and see the whole horse rider relationship we talked about during the last show where, where I was on the show. It's it's all about communication and we communicate with our horses through our body. And, uh, you know, Tim, when we talked about the horse rider coordination side of things and, you know, and, and when I said that it's all about the very, very tiny subtle signals you give so imagine this so at home you train your horse to re to react to certain tension you have in your hands and i mean tension now in a positive sense right if you imagine the tension in your hands your legs your backside uh your shoulders on a scale from zero to ten with zero you're completely relaxed you're falling off your horse because you're so relaxed with ten you're almost jumping out of your skin um, and then, you know, and, and if, if you imagine that, that, um, and if you ask yourself in training, Hey, what kind of tension do I have in, you know, in my body? Um, and then you compare that to the tension you have at a competition. If you ask this, most people will admit that their tension in competition is higher. But if we now translate this to what happens then with the horse, because the horse is trained to respond to a certain amount of tension, the cues that we give. So it's it's all about um, the horse all of a sudden not understanding what you're trying to ask. Um, so Nicole, so it's it's a good moment to ask for feedback from the competitor. But so what I'm describing here, does that make any sense to you? Yeah, I, I mean, 100%. I, I actually think about this a lot. And, you know, you can practice over and over at home. But if you're not going to replicate things the way you practice at home in, in the ring, then, you know, are you practicing the right things or are you, is there something, you know, you're doing in the ring that you should be doing differently? And I mean, for me, I think I've always used like the tools of meditation as a way to sort of try and bring myself back. Um, and not always that I'm like, you know, in the middle of a course, you know, meditating, but, um, like, when I walk the course, I think about where to take a deep breath um, and sort of like recenter myself a little bit uh, to make sure that I am communicating clearly and not getting just like sort of rolling in, in sort of the emotion and the, you know, what, what's going on in front of me. Well, that's excellent though, because essentially what you're doing is um, uh the, the meditation that you're talking about and the breathing exercises that you're mentioning here, I actually had a chat about this with my husband and my son the other day. Um, um, 
because to be honest, so all the listeners, this doesn't apply to only horse riding. It can also help with stress at school. It can help when you're worried about giving a presentation. Because um, essentially, breathing, the, the biggest problem with anxiety, or with you know, nervousness, uh, even excitement, even positive emotions, is that you're not in the here and now. And this is what our horses respond to. Um, because... Say you're entering the arena and you're thinking, oh, I really need to go clear or I really need to, um, you know, to, to, to get that score. What happens is you're already thinking about the future. Um, and depending on how you interpret that future, your body reacts to it through tension, through, you know, as we were just saying, through more muscular tension, shift in a position. But that is different to the thoughts you have when you ride at home. Because when you ride at home, you're much more in the here and now because you're focusing on, okay, now I need to do this exercise, now I need to do that exercise. So that very slight shift in focus at a show already means that you're no longer in the here and now. But Nicole, what, what you're doing, when you're actually breathing, especially when you're determining, I actually think that's brilliant, where you want to breathe in the course, it basically means at that moment, you focus on your body. And when you focus on your body through breathing, you don't have time in your head to think about anything else, which means it brings you back to the here and now. It gets you to get back into contact with yourself and with your horse. Because if we only live in our heads, we kind of we ignore the feel that the horse might give us. So a simple exercise such as here I'll breathe in or breathe out, preferably both, um, <laughs> will, will help you um, to get back to the here and now and focus on what you have to do at that moment in time, namely focus on what your horse is doing underneath you, focusing on how much tension you've got in your hands. And this very nicely relates back to what I was just saying a minute ago, that try and do this little exercise at home, that when you ride, try and rate yourself. And in the beginning, it's really weird because you don't have any, any reference. But if you kind of think, okay, zero is completely relaxed. I can't even stand up because I'm so relaxed. And 10 is, you know, I'm really, really tense. And if you do this for a couple of days, you get a really good grasp as to what your normal level of tension is. And then when you go to a show, Try and try and see what your tension is. And if you feel it's too high, do what Nicole just told us to do. That is breathe in, breathe out. Because at that moment, you actually st stop your head from overexcitement. It, it might already help getting a little bit more relaxation in your shoulders. Um, if you realize that you're far too tense, you can try and deliberately loosen up your shoulders, your, your, your knees, you know, sort of dropping your knees. You know, this is something that I myself do quite a lot. You know, when I get, when I get tense and excited, which happens quite a lot, um, I tend to um, get very tense on my inner thighs and then my knee comes up. But, um, but that basically means that my horse will feel that through the saddle, which is, which is a good thing because obviously this is also how he reacts to my aids. But then what I then do, I try and sort of loosen up by kind of opening my inner leg. And so my leg will lengthen again and my seat come, becomes softer. And all of this is related to first realizing, hey, 
how do I react to the situation? Well, that's that's really really fascinating, Inga. I, you know, it's really really cool to hear your perspective on this. And just circling back to one thing you said towards the start, which I I thought really interesting about how like as soon as that bell goes or as soon as they enter the ring, there's that little bit of a a change in the psyche and. I, I think a lot of times it comes, as you say, because p- people are trying to do something special, right? It's sort of that, like, okay, you're now competing, like, and really the goal is to just replicate what you do in training over and over to view competition as another training session, right? But it it reminds me of uh, so an individual who remained no- nameless, but at the World Championships this summer in Denmark, there was a team coach who was putting out all these press releases about their athletes and sort of saying, like, oh, we're going to do something really special here. You know, like everything's been going so well, blah, blah, blah. And then as soon as, and like, I remember like reading these and I was just texting my friends being like, I guarantee this is going to blow up. Like it is just like kind of coaching one-on-one not to do that. Right. And then and it, it inevitably blows up and he puts out press releases sort of condemning the athletes. And you're just like, 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 dear God, but like, just talk, like, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about like the importance of the external input as well. Cause I think a lot of coaches, they perceive it as, oh, I just want to do the best for my athletes and I'm motivating them versus like they're actually causing a, you know, just an absolute cluster of, of issues. Right. So I'm just really curious to hear your uh, feedback on the, the external input that does come in from parents and coaches and, and sort of so on. See now, Tim, I thought you were already moving on to my most favorite topic, which I told you before the show. So I'm going to try and work (laughs) that in in a second. Um, um, because it's actually very closely related to this and not because I want it to be. Um, okay, so first of all, yes. Um, see, there, there are some athletes out there who might be able to cope with that kind of pressure. There are some athletes out there uh, who who perform really well when it's being piled on like this. But um, generally, um, those individuals are rare. Because essentially, you need to be a super cool character to be able to cope with this. Because um, so, so for a coach, while I appreciate that, and while, while I while I totally understand where this is kind of coming from, because we also see it in other sports, right? We see it in you know, the, so the hype that's being created uh, surrounding the athletes, we see this in other sports. But the thing that makes our sport different. I'm quite sure that most listeners and probably you guys will go, oh, there she goes again. But it's what separates us is we've got another living being that we are communicating with. And that living being doesn't have a clue what that coach might have said. So that basically means that, and again, it also links back to what I just said. See, if you're creating pressure through building up the excitement, um, if you are a runner, say, that pressure might be useful because you're actually sort of making your muscles as tight as springs and you might, you know, that extra adrenaline might make you run even faster if you're also able to, you know, keep in the stride, etc. The problem is that extra tension in our muscles means that our horse, as I've just said, that's been trained to do something on a certain cue and I think this is so essential for every rider to realize that. Our horses are so sensitive, they can feel a fly on their back. Um, that basically means that if we shift 
even very slightly, and unfortunately our listeners can't see this, I'm sort of kind of tightening my hands here, and we're doing this through Teams, so Tim and Nicole, they can, oh no, you can't see my hands. No, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> so even while I'm talking, you know, just, just tensing your, your fingers ever so slightly will change the contact you have with your horse. The horse doesn't know, your coach has just put that out, so the horse will react, okay, she wants me to do more of a half hold. Especially seeing that at that level, these horses are so super sensitive because they've been bred like this, because they cannot perform at that level if they're not mega sensitive. So even a very slight change that might even be imperceptible to us, the horse will feel. And that basically means, because they're so clever, they will react to it. But what you then get, the rider might not realize this, that all of a sudden it feels slightly different. So the horse all of a sudden reacts and the rider goes, yeah, but what's, she do what's he doing? So the rider will all of a sudden get insecure because he doesn't get, or he or she doesn't get the response he or she um, expects from the horse, will get angry, scared, etc., And you get this whole vicious cycle um, where, where then the rider reacts perhaps a little bit more sharply now, say, for example, you know, because this is what we see so much in competition that ding, 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 the bell goes, especially in dressage, um, um, that, that, you know, all of a sudden, you know, they sit up and it's just to the listeners who might be listening. And please only do this uh, if you're safe and, and not doing anything scary. If you um, imagine you're now sitting on your chair and, and the bell goes and you just sit up ever so slightly you'll notice how all of a sudden your, your elbows will push into your body. Um, you'll kind of tighten your muscles ever so slightly. And you can imagine the horse coming slightly more back towards you. And you're thinking, what's he doing now? So what you might do, you'll give more leg, right? So what the horse will do, the horse might shoot forward because it'll go, why are you giving this leg aid now? So can you see how this whole vicious circle uh, reacts? So while I understand that a coach might want to, you know, kind of build up their team, um, first of all, they need to check whether they whether whether the team is okay with this and not just one team member, but the whole team, because it'll also, you know, because perhaps someone on the team can deal with it, but can the rest? And, uh, and, the next thing is, is um, to also talk with the athletes as to how they cope, how they might be able to cope with the pressure that they might feel also on the day. Because athletes might say in advance, oh, yeah, yeah, just do that. I'll be able to cope. But then they come to the big show and all of a sudden the atmosphere will be so overwhelming that all of that they might not be able to handle the pressure. So so. If a coach thinks in terms to gain sponsors, I don't know, this might be the way forward. They also need to discuss a strategy as to how to cope. No, really, really interesting. And I think, uh, you know, without putting it off any further, we'll jump into the goal setting topic because <laughs> I'm super curious to, to hear your thoughts on this. So, uh, you know, it's something that I think everyone is thinking about, but maybe they don't actually have a framework for how to implement goals um you know nicole's already down there uh but the winter circuit in florida i think is always a really good example of this especially for the canadian riders who go down because like 
the Florida circuit sort of like put on a pedestal a little bit. And everyone has these, you know, these huge goals when they go down, like everyone's like, you know, potentially buying a new horse. Like they have these big dreams. And, uh, but when you actually look at like what people tell me they're going to do when they go to Florida versus like, if you check up with them after the 12 week circuit, uh, the number of people who actually met those goals, like maybe it's one in 20 realistically who actually like did everything they're saying that they were going to do. So like, what is it behind or what is the reasoning surround this? Are people just inherently always setting unrealistic goals or is it that they're not, the goal may be realistic, but they don't actually have a map of how to achieve it and, and sort of hitting milestones or, yeah, I'm just really curious to hear your take on it. Both. Oh no, you probably want more than that, right? No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Just another question first. What kind of goals do, you know, and obviously you don't have to, you know, tell them more generally, but can you give me a bit of an example just because now I'm curious? Yeah, Nicole may have better ideas on this. Like, I think for me, like usually what it is, is like, it'll be an amateur rider going down. Like maybe they've been jumping meter 20 for the last two years. And it's like, okay, like I'm going to be meter 30 by the time I get to Florida. Or especially for like the more senior riders, like trying to make, teams for Canada or whatever country in the future, like they know they're going to need to get a certain number of ranking points to sort of get on the chef to keeps radar. So those types of things, like, is it the same for you, Nicole? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's definitely differs by personality as well. I was talking to a young professional the other day that um, said, you know, his goal was to try and and win, you know, like a, a meter 45 down here, but he's been jumping meter 60 and, you know, his people around him said that that goal was was too low. And then other people said, well, what winning, what is, you know, it's, it's, what is the goal really? Um, so I think it really differs by personality. Like for me, I'm always like, I want to be consistent at this level. It's like more of a lofty. <laughs> um, so I, I can't say that there's like a across the board type of goal setting, but. Um, oh, yes, there is. You've oh. already given me precisely what I want okay. to hear. No, no, it's brilliant. It's just <laughs> um, as if we'd prepared this, which we haven't, unless you guys have. <laughs> the <laughs> no. funny thing is that, that the stuff that you guys have just given me is almost precisely what I was actually hoping you'd say. Okay. We've got – we can broadly uh, divide goals into three types. I've been looking forward to this so much. We've got outcome goals, we've got performance goals, and we've got process goals. The outcome goals are the being placed, winning a class. The performance goals are uh, scoring a certain number of points um, and uh, to some extent also being selected for a team if there are certain criteria attached to it. Um, uh, Tim, you also had another one um, uh, when you were... Uh, Just people moving up in height. Is yeah, that sort of what you're very thinking? good. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you. That's also a performance goal because it's measurable. And then you've got process goals. And Nicole, even though you say it's lofty, but to be honest, in terms of sports psychology, it's actually the best one to have. And I will explain why in a minute. Okay. If we now, um, uh, if we if we if we start with the outcome goals, because because those ones are in many ways the easiest to set, right? Because that's the outcome. That's what's the bottom line. I've won. I've become placed. Whatever. There's just one issue with this, and that is an outcome goal, especially in a competition, is really difficult to control yourself, because usually it also depends on other people. 
I can say I want to win, but I've got absolutely no influence over other people in the in the show. Does that make sense? <laughs> and even though I might not consciously think about this beforehand, subconsciously I do know this. I know that I've got no control over other competitors, how much money they've pumped into their horses, uh, whether their trainer rides their horse every day and they just get on it at the show. Um, even judges to some extent. Um, and that basically means if we if we get the feeling that we can't quite control the circumstances, that makes us nervous. But because we're so used to this whole outcome, yeah, I want to get placed, I want to become first, um, that actually puts a lot of pressure on us. A performance goal is, in that sense, better if it's measurable, right? You can say, okay, I want to move up a class. Um, I want to uh, uh, get a score of 70%, 75%, whatever. I want to get a clear round. Um, those are performance goals because they're easily measurable afterwards. And I'm the one that can control them um, if we assume that I also can control the horse. Right? Does, does it still make sense? Yeah. Yes. Tim is nodding. That's good. Um and uh, Nicole is laughing. <laughs> but then we also have the process goals because, see, a performance goal is only useful to the extent that they then also know how to get there. And I guess, Tim, this very much links to how you started this, that you were saying, is it because people don't have a clear plan as to, of, as to how to achieve those goals? And yes, that's precisely what it is. A process goal is essentially the, 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 yeah, literally the process that you have to follow through in order to achieve the performance that you want. And that can be something like, um, okay, so Nicole, sorry, you're going to be my practical example again because it works much <laughs> okay. better this way. When you go and show jump your horse, um, I, th how many horses have you got? Two? One. No, one. Okay, so when your ideal round um how does your horse how does he have to to work for you to say okay now he's perfect does it you know what rhythm forward in your hand whatever yeah i i like her to be like nicely responsive off my leg in my hand taking me to the jumps okay when you warm her up um What's the kind, what do you need to work on? Is she um, naturally off your leg or do you have to work on that? So funny enough, in the ring, she's quite a bit uh, nicer off my leg, really light. And, and I just have to sort of one time put her where I want her and then she pretty much stays there. But in the schooling area, she's much more relaxed and mellow and uh, takes a little bit more energy to get her to get her where I want her. Okay. So when you're when you're warming up, um, um, you actually want her already. I'm assuming ah. you really want her to sit and to come up and to work forward into your hand. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and he also wants to contribute to your dog. <laughs> you're not going to cut this out, right? <laughs> um, so so in terms of a process goal for you to ride a clear round, we've actually already now got two process goals. One is to get her off the leg, 
And the other is to for her to take your hand forward. Um, if you were to focus just on these two process goals throughout your round, and I know I'm making this very simple now, but quite often it is as simple as that, you'd probably get quite a good round, right? Yeah, absolutely. And this is already where it starts. You see, I used I used to have a, a mare. Um, oh, she, she she wasn't the easiest, shall we say? Also in show jumping, <laughs> um, and and she 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 could really jump, but she could also refuse. So so the key was also to first get her over the first cross pole in the warm up because that was always a bit of a thing. But she was also very much that that and she wasn't the best of the leg. But if I had her, so I just kind of need to get her motoring off my leg and really to get moving forward, not worry about the outline, um, you know, to sort of kind of trying to ride her nice and round. If I tried to do that, I'd get she just she wouldn't do it anymore. But if I could get her really moving off my leg and going forward with her head held high, which didn't look very pretty, but it was very effective, I'd be golden. So then the only thing I then needed to focus on is trying not to cut corners. Um, so that, you know, that was my biggest challenge. I'm not very good at riding straight at fences. I'm the first one to admit. I, I'm always looking for shortcuts. No. So, if, you know, if I made sure that I focused on getting her off my leg, into my hand, and then once I entered the, the course, um, focusing on really riding my lines, I'd get a clear round. Um, and so I can set myself a performance goal saying, hey, I want a clear round, but the key is then to split that into which process goals I have to have. And that applies to literally any discipline. To dressage, what do I need to do to make sure that my horse responds? Um, and and of course, you can make it as complex as you want, but I try to advise for people to really think about what are the two maximum three process goals that you think you need to do to get your horse working as well he or she has to, and ride that. And then afterwards, evaluate how you did. And Tim, now we're actually getting to the next part. So let's assume riders have done this, right? So they've set themselves performance goals, and then they've set themselves process goals. And then they go in and, and obviously, you know, you've, you've got these wonderful shows that go on for two weeks, um, um, you know, where, where people can actually repeat what they're doing, which gives an amazing opportunity to, to really practice your goal setting skill. But what I quite often see is two things. A, um, they go in and they try to do the process goal thing, but it doesn't work. And then they give up. And then you need to ask yourself, is it because the process goals weren't any good or is it because you didn't quite manage to follow through? If you say, well, I did follow through, but I still didn't get the result, you need to ask yourself, hey, do I perhaps need to focus on something else? Um, but, um, but perhaps you also didn't quite make it work, right? Because you perhaps you thought, okay, the horse, I wanted to be, I wanted for my horse to be on the leg, but my horse wasn't. Then that's not the process goal that's at fault, but you perhaps might need to do another warm-up strategy to really get the horse to do it. So once you've done your round, 
it's really good to sort of think back retrospectively, hey, what have I done? And then we've got the other one, and that is imagine you've set yourself a process goal and it worked really well and your horse might have jumped clear, but you weren't fast enough. Does that ring a bell, Nicole? <laughs> Maybe <laughs> once or twice, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you probably beat yourself up because perhaps you might have gone to show and I apologize if what I'm saying now is true, but do tell me if I'm right. You go to show and you think, okay, so I'm going to get a nice, lovely, clear round. And, you know, and you're working on your consistency. And from what you've told me, I already get the feeling that you're actually quite consciously aware of how you should ride. And then you get this lovely, nice, calm, clear round. And you go out and you miss the placings because you were not quite fast enough. And then you and then you get really annoyed with yourself because you're thinking, if I'd only just ridden a little bit more with a little bit more um, pizzazz, then I would have been placed. Does that make sense? Yes. Has it ever happened? Uh, more times than I, I care to remember. And you know what? This is possibly, in addition to not being able to set goals, the most common mistake. Because essentially you've done really, really well because you've actually precisely done what you set out to do. The fact that it worked so well that you've done really well, but you didn't actually focus on also being fast enough is actually no. So, so what I see is that, that people actually change their goals after they've gone in. And what that does, it actually undermines confidence. So, so the biggest tip to all the listeners and to Nicole <laughs> is, to, is to make sure that set yourself goals and if you actually achieve them, be really pleased with yourself and just readjust them ever so slightly for the next time because then you know that they work. And if you're saying, okay, but now I know how to, how to ride my horse so he's nice and relaxed and he's in his rhythm, I actually think I can step on the gas a little bit then do that, but incorporate it. Really, really interesting. And it, I feel like every time we have a guest on the podcast, like it, it circles into many, many different things, right? But I think that like one of the, the challenges with our sport, and we've chatted about it in a few different ways, like whether it's like training programs or like fitness tracking and so on, is that in our sport, no one tends to write stuff down. Um, like it's just like a, a bit of a virus in our community for whatever reason, like whether it's a training program or like making really diligent notes, about what the veterinarian is giving on feedback at different like checkups or, or sort of whatever. But it sounds like here again, like it, it's very relevant because I think that like in most sports, uh, the coaches are pretty good about putting out like a training program for maybe the next three, four months. And they have like a very clear objectives like it's written on top of the paper and everything a little bit like you're saying, like everything works towards achieving these objectives, which are more process-based. And then you take care of the process and the results will follow. Don't worry about it. Um, first, like, we tend to not have that in our world. Like they're very, like, you have a discussion with your coach, you set these goals. And then, so as you say, like it's a little bit of a moving target. And even if like someone like Nicole is actually doing everything she should be doing, um, you know, like if the goal is to change a little bit afterwards, because you're like, oh, I should have just done this, this, or this, then it's, yeah, it's really hard to actually like stay confident, stay happy with the progress first. Like if it was written down on a piece of paper right at the top and you go back and you're like, okay, like actually I did like achieve all the objectives for this last four months, then you feel very, like it's just fascinating how it all circles back in. Yeah, it's very true. 
and to be honest and and the the, the nice thing is is once you actually write stuff down um yeah you can you know you can check it off and you know there's even it's it's not for nothing that even Microsoft, you know, they've come up with all these checklists in your mailbox simply because it feels really good to tick them off. We people like this. Um, but it also means that the minute you write it down, and Tim, this is exactly what you were just saying, then it's, well, not quite set in stone, but almost. It becomes real, and it makes it much harder also to shift the goals. See, and um, um, if... If a, and coaches are very diligent and they're getting much more professional, but because if you're already, no, not because, but, but when you're already putting all the effort into making a training program, it's actually very simple to also set a few competitive goals on what you want to achieve for each show, because there's an additional side effect to this. Um, sometimes the pressure can cause us to lose focus during a show. Uh, we might get overwhelmed. You know, we started with this with the whole press release stuff, um, and and our heads they might sort of take off a life of their own, and they might think about all the things. Oh my God! And the sponsors will watch, and my mother will watch, and you know, what will they all think of me? If you've set goals, very simple goals, it helps your brain to focus on something rather than fixate on the negative thoughts. Again, it takes a little bit of training um, because you kind of literally need to say to your brain, okay, stop now faffing about whatever it is you're worried about. Focus on that thing that we've been talking about. But that only works if you know what you're supposed to be focusing on. So you actually literally need to come up with some taglines. So, Nicole, in your, in your case, off the leg or light off the leg or whatever and into my hand. Um, and then you can get you know and even if you then might get really worried i don't know whether you do but you know somebody might be watching where you're thinking oh, i really need to impress them then you can go no no off my leg into my hand and it's really simple and our brains they like simple stuff to hold on to so this can also serve as a bit of a um as an anchor yeah i, I think that's really important and uh, as as you were talking and, and thinking about also Tim's question earlier about, you know, the outside factors. Um, there's sort of two things that come to mind. One is the role of, you know, social media. And um, <laughs> I, I think it's a little bit of a, of a curse to younger generations is that, you know, they, they live in that realm. So, uh, you know, how do you stay true to your goals and to your process when you feel, um, the pressures of, of what social media creates. And that's, um, you know, a little bit of, of like, well, everybody else is out there winning. They always have good days and how come I'm having a bad day. And, you know, that sort of false sense of, um, you know, an unrealistic <laughs> picture of, of what the people around you are doing. Um, do you have any advice? Um, and, and I, I don't think it's always, just social media. I think like Wellington in general, it's you're here for 12 to 13 weeks. Um, you know, somebody's on a hot streak and you're just watching them and, and you can't figure out why that, why that isn't you. Um, or it just feels like everybody else, you know, is, is reaching their goals and you're not. So do you have advice for people in, in those sort of circumstances? 
Well, to start off with, you know the analogy of the swan, right? The swan that that sort of glides across the water and it looks ever so swan-like, you know, uh, and you guys are thinking, where is she going with this? Wait, <laughs> wait. Um, and it, it looks so serene. It looks as if it comes so easy that they're sort of floating across the water. But underneath, they're paddling like crazy, um, which is true with swans, but it's also true with real life. Um, um, social media is a filter. Um, so I'm going to start off with social media. Um, essentially, we only we all only post the stuff that we want others to see. So only think about the kind of stuff that 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 you post. You know, you don't post all the negative or perceived negative bits that happen to you. You only post the stuff that you want others to see that you're proud of or whatever, unless you're posting something that, you know, because you're deliberately posting something that's difficult for you. But essentially, the whole social media bubble is something that we create with intent. But that also means that if you measure your life, if you compare your life, your own real life to that of a social media life, you'll never win simply because that's filtered. Um, and, and that doesn't make it any easier, of course, uh, uh, because it, you know, it might still feel like that. But what you could do is, is do a bit of an exercise that you, that you imagine, you know, if, if you see this and you're thinking, oh, why am I not posting this? Try and create, and either, either you post it deliberately or not, um, um, a sort of like a, a social media day of what you might post. Think about all the fun, uh, all the all the fun posts that you might create of your successful day. How might you rewrite your own day? And you don't have to post that, but just to give you an idea of, hey, if I rephrase this, rephrase it and reframed it, what might it look like? Um, so, so this is all about putting it into perspective. But at the same time, well. And this is much easier said than done. Um, it's also important to to try and not focus so much on comparing yourself to others, but focus on what are your own strengths. Unfortunately, we live in a world that even though we pay lip service to, oh yeah, you need to work on, you know, you need to rely on your strength. In many ways, I think the sports world is still very much work on your weaknesses, rather than and um, but. In essence, that makes it quite difficult also for our self-esteem and self-confidence. Um, try and focus more on the stuff that you're good at um, um, and, and try highlight that much more rather than trying to work on the weaknesses all the time. I hope this makes any sense at all. Um, you know, if you think I've, if you've got a horse that's really good at, I don't know, uh, um, um, a medium trot, I don't know, an extended trot. Really work on that medium and extended trot rather than kind of neglecting that and just working on the on the one thing that the horse is not very good at before, uh, for example, sorry, a bit of Dutch in there, for example, standing still, right? Um, if you keep hammering on that one thing you're not very good at, all it'll do is it'll make, you feel it'll make yourself feel worse. So try and also focus on the bits that you do really well um, and and from that strength and from that um, positive energy, 
you'll recreate more positive energy, especially if you're surrounded by lots of professionals. If you keep comparing your worst parts to all the others, you'll just feel even worse. Much better to think, yeah, okay, he's got a really nice horse, but my horse can do this, this, and this, and that's what I'm really going to work on. Does that that's make really, sense? Yeah, that's really great and really helpful. Um, and I, I just want to shift gears a little bit. I know we're running a little low on time, but one area that I find um, really interesting but also challenging to navigate is how sports psychology and a sports psychologist fits into the rider's team. So, of course, in any program, you know, the student sort of needs to be at the center of the team and the team needs to work around them to some degree. I think this is, you know, easier in smaller barns, smaller programs than it is in larger ones. But at the end of the day, um, you know, the team is there to put the student in the best position to be successful. So how does the sports psychologist fit into that team? Should they be having a direct input, you know, to the student? Should they be interacting with the, with the coaches? Um, I, I think there are probably arguments for both, but I'm really curious to hear your thoughts. Um, the relationship between the sports psych and the athlete um, is, uh, in the first instance, um, very confidential. Because it, it needs to be um, because the the rider needs to be able to trust the sports psych with their with their deep se deepest secrets um, and rely on the fact that the sports psychologist will not share this with anybody else unless permitted to do so. So in that sense, um, I think the sports psych does a bit of both. Uh, it, but only if the athlete permits. If the athlete says, I want you, to the sports psychologist, I want you to only work with me and I communicate to the coach, then essentially that's up to the athlete. If the sports psych sees that this is not very effective, it's up to the sports psych to discuss it with the athlete or with the parents, because this is another thing, you know, we need to uh, determine whether you know we're talking underage or um, of age. Then, um, um, uh, then it's up to up to the sports psych to sort of say to the athlete, okay, I think it might be useful if I also had a chat with the coach. But this is something that that they need to discuss openly, transparently at the start of the relationship, and also revise it throughout. But most importantly, it must be a safe and secure environment for the athlete. So, so the athlete must never ever be afraid the sports psych might talk to the coach behind their back. So, really, so in that sense. Yeah. yeah, really, really good advice there. And I think it it definitely creates a, a useful framework, I think, and it gives people a perspective on how to bring in this information. So I think um, just some incredible content there, Inga. Super, super thankful that you took the time to chat with us. I think yeah, we could have chatted for hours more, which means we'll probably have you back on again. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, really, really fascinating. And I think it's an episode that every rider should uh, be listening to. Because as you highlighted, like, yeah, yeah, like, you know, this is a lot talking about the rider's inputs, but it has a direct correlation to the horse, right? Through, the, through those dynamics and ultimately the quality of life the horse is living is directly related to this and the ability of the horse to perform its job is directly related as well. So it, it all loops in very nicely. Um, last time we had you on, we, we asked you what you'd want to say to, to a horse. So we've already checked that box off. So uh, any, any final 
wisdom that you'd really want to tell a rider, I guess, uh, just sort of based on these topics. I was going to say, can I then can I then say something to the rider instead? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. My advice to a rider is um, be kind to yourself. Um, as riders, uh, we tend to be really hard on ourselves, and, and that's good when it comes to the welfare of our horse. Um, but um, it's, it's okay to take your time. It's also okay to admit that it's difficult. Because only once you actually admit to yourself that something is difficult can you take the next step. Um, ask for help. Um, ask people what they think. And then just take it from there. That's really, really awesome. Thank you so much, Inga, for coming back and chatting with us again. And hopefully we'll we'll get to do this again in the future. I hope so too. It's been great fun once again. Thanks so much for having me. So that was a great episode. Um, really enjoyed the discussion with Inga. The way she presents concepts, she does such a good job of showing how one issue at the start can lead to a cascade of effects that can impact how the horse responds, how the rider responds, and and a lot of those challenges that we do see in the ring, especially with less experienced riders, but also uh, you know with some really good riders, some really experienced riders, but just in more stressful situations for them. Um, she went through and uh, highlighted the three different types of goals: so the outcome goals, the performance goals, and the process goals. And I would encourage all of our listeners, as Inga said, to to go through and think about your own goals and your riding for 2023. Um, how do those goals uh, factor in? Are they outcome goals? Are they performance goals? Or are they process goals? And if you do have a goal that's currently maybe an outcome goal, like what can you do to make that a process goal so that it is more achievable and that you are able to uh, put yourself in a position more likely to achieve that goal and to build on that? Because uh, I think that that is for sure one of the, the goals of this entire process of the sport horse podcast is to put our any our listeners or so riders or trainers uh you know across different disciplines as well the vets the therapists the farriers and so on how do we put give information that allows everyone to be successful and to do the, the best job that they can so um i would encourage everyone to go through that process and uh, as i mentioned at the start of the episode i'll provide some links in the show notes uh to some of Inga's other uh, the videos she's done, some of the different articles she's done, as well as some of the some of the books that she has uh, written. Um, I would encourage you all to go in and check that out. You can find the links to today's guest and the show notes at www.sporthorsepodcast.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at Sport Horse Series and on Facebook at Sport Horse Series as well. We also hope that you'll take a minute to like and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening. It helps other people to find the podcast. So we really appreciate if you could just take a few minutes to do that. Also, following us will make sure that you never miss an episode. We release episodes uh, twice a month on the 10th and the 25th. And following us will make sure that you will um, get the news first as soon as it's released. You can have all 20 plus shows of the Horse Radio Network with you wherever you go with our free app for iPhone and Android. Just go to the app store and search Horse Radio Network. As always, oh shoot, what is my closing line? (laughs) Yeah, I I was actually Uh, waiting to see if you're going to do sport horses or just horses happy and healthy. 
Here's to keeping your horses happy and healthy.